and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got hard drives, we've got the G7 camera, and of course we've got some free film school. But first, Mitch, what have you been up to? Good morning, DJ. Yes, I am indeed from that wonderful website called Planet5D.com. Thanks for the plug. Things have been going crazy here. I've had a lot of problems, and we're going to talk about a lot of my problems today and a lot of my opportunities, I'm sure, because I love to talk about my problems. It's all about me. Let's dive in. Oh, man. Okay, so we've actually got a lot to cover as far as hard drives go. Mitch uh, hit me up with a suggestion and a request for hard drive talk. But before we do that, let's go ahead and get into the news. First thing on the list here is the G7 from Panasonic. This camera was finally announced and priced, and it was in the price range I was expecting. We're looking at a price tag of about $800 for this guy, and it appears to be a baby GH4. When I say baby, the 4K resolution is limited to UHD, not true 4K. It does have a few limitations like no headphone output, but they did include a microphone input as well as probably 90% of the features that are available in the GH4. Mitch, I've seen a post about this on planet5d.com. What do you think about this camera? I'm kind of liking this camera. Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm really thinking that I need to try a couple of different Micro Four Thirds cameras. And saving a little bit of money when I do that would be paramount for me. Again, I'm not doing a whole lot of major filmmaking, so I don't need 4K at this point. Uh, I can try it out, obviously, with the UHD uh, settings, so that could be interesting. Uh, But uh, so getting in at a low price point with the Micro Four Thirds is kind of appealing to me right now. Now, Mitch, even if you don't film, I've got the GH4 in front of me, and it looks like the G7 has the same burst rate. This is the sweetest thing if you are just doing photography with this camera. Wait a minute. Hold on. If I got it in the right setting, okay. not movie mode, I am failing on air. Now listen to this. Oh, no. You hear that sweet uh. shutter sound? That is... <laughs> I don't know how many frames per second. I think it's like 14 or 15 frames per second. The burst mode on this camera is excellent. Uh, You don't have a huge buffer, so you're going to run out pretty fast. But if you're shooting sports, anything moving fast, kids, whatever, the photography features on these Micro Four Thirds cameras are excellent. And now with the latest firmware update, and it appears that the G7 also has that as well, you have one sixteen thousandth shutter speed so that means you don't necessarily need to use an nd filter if you're trying to go wide open on your aperture shooting in direct sunlight that's another sweet (laughs) excellent thing to have um 800 bucks guys this is basically 400 dollars less than the gh4's retail price and it's only missing a few minor things and you get 4k shooting inside a micro four thirds camera it's an excellent way to move into Micro Four Thirds if you're still kind of testing the waters and determining whether or not that is actually for you. Mitch, would you shoot 4K if you did go with this camera? No, I don't have any need to shoot 4K. 
What about pan and honest. scan, man? You could like move over in the <laughs> shot and do some slides and everything else. I don't know that many product reviews that need to be shot in 4K, to be frankly honest with you. Um, although I, I was rather interested. I've been doing some research into MacBooks, um, laptops and stuff, which is a whole nother topic, of course, because I'm a Mac guy and you are not. But I found a young lady that's doing reviews and she's shooting them not in 4K, but she's shooting them in 1080, but she's shooting them at 60p, which I, and she's really all excited about the fact that she's shooting them in 60 frames per second. I don't know that I understand that, but you can upload those in YouTube now, so... Yeah, YouTube, uh, for those of you not familiar with that, just recently allowed for the 60p at 1080p, or, excuse me, 60 frames per second at 1080p or 60 frames per second at 720. So when you upload, you can get that faster sort of frame rate. Uh, the reason people like that, and a lot of reviewers really love it, is because it makes everything look super crisp. And it, right. it really shows everything... Uh, really clear. You don't get any kind of sort of motion blur between frames or anything like that. And uh, for that reason, reviewers really like it because you spin a product around in front of the camera at 60p and now it's beautiful and you can see every nook and cranny. Whereas people that shoot film don't necessarily care for it because that same crisp image, it works against you with special effects, with uh, any practical effects, things like that. And it sort of gives you that live TV broadcast look that a lot of people aren't fans of. Frame rate wise, I guess it's kind of personal preference. There is no right or wrong answer to frame rate. Well, I think in her particular case, she's an attractive young lady, so it works for her. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know whether that has anything to do with it. I mean, it was, it was interesting to be able to watch her product review and and really see the product very clearly i mean it was almost as if it was in 4k but i know it wasn't so i i was i was toying with the idea of experimenting with that uh, when i get started to do a couple of new reviews well frame rates are always fun to mess around with moving on down the line since we still have that big giant hard drive issue to talk about <laughs> is uh, the tmc classes that are available for free online you sign up for these classes and T uh, tcm excuse me the television network uh, does these every year and they're really cool they cover old films uh, from different genres and different eras this year they're doing film noir so if you're interested in that dark uh, black and white high contrast style from the 50s and 40s uh, they're basically going through and analyzing all these different films, the techniques that were used, and how they told the story throughout the film. I, I know a lot of us don't go to film school directly. We go to school for other things, and then we end up in the film industry. But if you're wanting to learn kind of the techniques that are used to make film noir, this class is free. You sign up. You can watch the little bits and pieces of it. It's a nine-week course. Well worth checking out. Mitch, have you ever done any of these online classes, lynda.com, or any of these other ones that are out there available for you? I do quite a few classes, and, and the more I do, the more I learn and the better I become. So I, I saw a very interesting tidbit, it's a little bit off topic, the other day from a gentleman by the name of Darren Hardy, who does the motivational kind of stuff. And one of the things that he was talking about was talking to college 
kids that are graduating. And he said that, you know, typically college kids graduate and you think, okay, my education is over. I'm done. I've learned everything I need to know. Right. And, <laughs> and I think he really, really put a nail in it to me because I've recently been spending a lot more time and effort in the education. Uh, learning stuff is, has become very valuable for me right now. Uh, I, I guess I've always been learning, but it's always sort of been, you know, like hit and miss, like reading this website called uh, Planet ID. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's it's an education in itself. But if you spend time uh, actually taking a class and, and you get a different perspective on life. And Darren Hardy was talking about actually taking 10 percent of your income and investing that in your own personal education on a yearly basis, which is not something most people think about. But I think the older I get, the more valuable education has become, uh, not only because I want to learn stuff, but because I want to teach stuff. And the, the, old, the problem recently, and I'm going on a minor rant here, is that a lot of people think that you can learn everything for free on the Internet, right? Of course, here's this class that you're showing us that's a nine-week class that's totally free on Film Noir. Uh, but there are also educational classes that are worth paying money for, which is what I've been doing a lot more recently. So free is good, paid is good, but getting that education, I think, is incredibly valuable. One of the great resources I use all the time is Creative Live, um, and I end up buying probably half of the classes. So Creative Live offers things for free What if you can watch it real time. And they're either one or two or three day classes and they'll actually replay it at night. You can watch it for live for free. But then if you want to save the video and watch it, go back and watch it again later, which I think is really valuable. Uh, a lot of times I go back and there are certain segments of things that I want to rewatch. Uh, so if you end up getting it for free but you don't have a recording of it then of course you can't go back and watch it again uh, so i i've i've as an as another tidbit and i'm really going long on this but i hope that's okay uh going back i mean watching a class one time is valuable but going back and watching it a second or a third time really brings out more of the flavor for me and so i've been doing a lot of rewatching of stuff so that's another one of my well-known tips. Well, one of and the I'll things give you that one for yeah. One of the things about paying for classes that's nice, and I I subscribe to Udemy, which is a just a right. updating uh, class type of deal. You pay a little bit; it's like ten to twenty bucks per session or class or whatever. Is there's a lot of tools in like After Effects and Premiere and so on that I only use occasionally, and I use them so occasionally that even though I've taken the class on it, I've gone through all the work and everything, and and kind of solidified my skills I go back and I'm like okay I know I can do this but how did I do that how is that done and I can go to that particular chapter or section in the videos that I paid for watch that section again and kind of uh, refresh myself on it before I start work on that project where I need that particular setting style or whatever and, and those things are really valuable the problem with uh, going just to YouTube and, and some of these other places to watch free videos is that you get like one little section and you don't get an entire syllabus. You don't get all of the stuff together. So if you want to know one thing, like, okay, I was looking for the shortcut key command for trimming in uh, After Effects the other day because I couldn't remember that it was control and then bracket. 
And so I went and found that right away on the on the YouTube video. But then you watch some of the guys' other YouTube videos, and they're just random bits all over the place. They don't necessarily cover anything in a structured manner. They just start, right. he's like, "Here's a tip. Here's another tip. Here's another tip." And if you gather all those and you can remember them, that's fine. But if it's presented to you in such a way that you can go through and search for it easily, that makes it so much better to work with. And I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but manuals. I know a lot of people don't bother reading the manuals. And I know that's like hardy hard, the man thing to do. You don't read the manual. You just get the camera out and you go use it, whatever. Well, that's great. Exactly. But, man, what you can do is you get a PDF reader. You put it on your phone. Easy PDF is one that I use all the time. You load all the manuals for all the equipment that you're going to use. And Easy PDF has a read function that will read the manual to you. So if you're heading to a job and you rented a bunch of camera equipment that you haven't used in four months or six months, you have lost the familiarity that you had the last time you worked on that project. You hit play on that manual in the sections that you're not familiar with or you don't remember, and just listen to it as you're going to the job or flying or whatever, and that will refresh you on those parts of the camera and get you ready to roll when you walk in. Then when someone asks you a question about format or connections or something like that, you just heard it and it's in your head floating around ready to roll use your freaking manuals people use manuals they're very important mitch you got anything to add to that (laughs) uh amen brother that's that's i i think we're preaching to the choir but uh i i've I've likened it to to many things like when i got out of college for example I felt like I could learn anything and I wanted to learn everything, right? So when I was at, at work, somebody said, hey, you want to work on this project? You're going to need to learn X, Y, Z. And I was like, yeah, I, I want to do that. Uh, and then we got to the mode where I didn't learn a whole lot. But now as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm doing a whole lot more learning. And I especially want to uh, save some time. And I think the older we get, the, the more time we want to save. And I know, like you said, I can go find all sorts of resources on on YouTube now in this modern world. Uh, But the consistency of buying a course where everything's put together, like you said, all in one big bucket, and I can just go through it, start to finish and skip around if I need to. uh, And and getting all of that content from one source is so much more valuable to me than, than wasting two or three hours searching on YouTube and finding a whole bunch of crap that's that's not applicable to what I need to learn. You know, the other pro oh. tip, and this is kind of an old school method that I still use today, is when you will, you watch these classes or you go to these seminars or you pay for these events to check stuff out, bring a notebook, and not everything is applicable to what you need to do. But the key features, the things that are really important, like if you're learning lighting techniques, maybe draw out some diagrams. Keep that notebook with you with all your shortcuts and everything else that you've gathered from these classes and use that as a reference guide. You pay for the classes, you might as well bring some material back with you and keep it with you all the time. That makes it so much easier when you're trying to remember, you know, again, formats, uh, connection types, all that stuff. And you have it written down. When someone asks you, if you just look at them with a blank stare and say, I don't know, I'll look it up, you kind of look like a fool. But if you're like, just a sec, you open up your notebook and there you have notes written down on what it is and you say, yeah, it's this connection type and this blah, 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 and you nail it. Uh That client immediately goes from sort of okay with you to this guy knows his stuff, and this is the guy I want to continue to work on my projects and have involved in the things that I have coming up in the future. Those are the types of things that really just nail it for you. And Mitch is absolutely right. Classes are so important. Um, I do 
I don't know, I think it's 60 or 70 hours of continuing education every year just on editing suites, let alone all the other stuff that I need to know for other things, uh, programming control systems. I do CNC and laser control systems, so I have to know all of that stuff. And then uh, filming and music making and everything else that goes in, in line with all this stuff, it becomes like a huge trove where I can't remember everything that I've learned, but because I keep meticulous notes i'm able to find all that stuff and become an expert again whenever they need me to be great <laughs> okay that's enough of that rant. That's perfect um moving on down the line this is another one that i'm actually extremely excited about the olympus 7 to 14 millimeter f28 has finally got official pricing announced i've been waiting on this lens for almost a year and a half now this is an ultra wide for micro four thirds cameras looks like we're going to get a reasonable price from olympus uh, $1,300 is the price tag on this. Now, that does sound expensive, but compare that to the 16 to 35 millimeter F2.8 Mark II from Canon. What's that sitting at? About $1,600, $1,500, yeah. something like that? Yeah. So this is in range with that. Uh, Olympus lenses are high quality. I've actually, when I was demonstrating the GH4, I've got the Olympus uh, 12 to 40 millimeter F2.8 on here. And they're well-built, nice and solid. They've got a good end stop on their uh, focus ring, so you can actually hear that click. And it's all made out of metal and stuff. Uh, this one's actually been exposed to the ocean a few times by accident, and it still functions properly, even though the you, hot shoe... You mean it went for a swim? Yeah. Is that well, what you mean? I was filming next to the water uh, for a scene, and I didn't realize that the waves were starting to crest... Uh -oh. So we're shooting uh -oh. and we've been shooting for like 15 minutes or 20 minutes and, and no problem. You know, the waves are coming in, but they're landing kind of uh, far away and not causing any problems. And then suddenly one big one just splashes up and completely drenches the camera, me uh -huh. and the talent. <laughs> yeah. And the camera made it out. Okay. Except I've got some weird growth on the hot shoe here. So uh -oh. thank goodness I don't use the hot shoe on the GH4 or that would be real bad. But yeah, so Olympus makes some great lenses. I'm extremely excited about this ultra wide angle lens for uh, micro four thirds cameras and it'll probably replace my Panasonic 7 to 14 F4. Mitch, I know we've talked about wide angle lenses before. Are you even remotely considering moving to a wide angle ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever? Actually, I don't know that I told you, but I, I actually shot with um, the 14 millimeter from Canon a couple of months ago. Oh, uh, nice. A month ago. Uh, got some really interesting shots of the uh, gateway drum line that I was shooting at the time. I don't, we haven't really talked about that much. Did you do like uh, the low to the ground? in the middle as they yeah. march by shot well it's it's an indoor drum line okay so it's not it's marching. not like being out on a marching field where they walk by uh, and, and unfortunately i don't know if you've ever seen one of these shows they, they do some crazy wild stuff but they typically have a what they call a pit or a drum pit up in the front row with marimbas and xylophones and you know, all those kind of things that don't march and then behind that, they have the snares and the basses and the uh, tenor drums doing a whole bunch of weird stuff moving around. So they don't typically let you out in the middle of that with the camera. Now, I probably could do that in practice, but uh, these guys are like in the top 10 in the world. So, oh, wow. 
they typically don't let me out there yet, although they've, they kind of liked the slideshow that I did for them this year, so maybe next year I'll get to do something cool like that. Uh, but I did, I did, it was kind of fun because I was shooting them, and I, I still get wrapped up over that word. Well, I was shooting people, <laughs> not with a gun, okay, people. I was using a camera, but I was using this 14 millimeter, and it was really awesome to get down on the front of the xylophone so that you can see the xylophone and their hands and the yeah. mallets that they're using as well as their face and then the, the background behind them. So I have quite a few shots like that. And I got really concerned because I was getting up really close. And they were like, what the hell are you doing? But once they saw the shots, they're like, holy crap, those are awesome. So I did enjoy doing that. I rented that from a place called Lens Pro to Go. You've heard of them? Yes, I have. Uh, I like Lens Protico. There are a bunch of good people over there. So, you know, camera, uh, Lens Rentals is good. Uh, if you're in Canada, go to my friend uh, Craig over there at uh, Lens Rentals of Canada. He does some, excuse me, some great stuff. Now He also runs Canon Rumors. I don't know if you know Craig. You've never met Craig. I've you? never met Craig. Well, next now, year we'll, we'll introduce you at NAB. One thing to think about if you're doing uh, marching bands, and I found this out the kind of through other means, I didn't know that before they do a parade route, they do a practice run for like two days prior to the parade route. And when I, I got hired to do like an introspective because they were doing like a fundraiser thing where they wanted to have a really good video, and then they wanted to show it to to all the parents and to the sponsors and to the people that usually donate to the college. And I was like, I need to film in the middle. I want this beautiful line where the marching band walks straight across with a wide angle lens, you know, kind of in the middle, aimed up so I can see everybody like coming into frame. And I want to cut between that as I go to all these other things, you know, the twirlers and all that stuff. And they're like, you can't get on the parade route. You are not allowed on the parade route, period. No way. And I started talking to the guys and they're like, well, actually, let me tell you, we do a practice run of this. Uh, you know, two or three times before we do the actual one. So I framed it in such a way that you don't get the street, you just get the marching band, set it in the front, and then I filmed their practice run, and I was able to get multiple angles with a single camera because they do the practice route like four or five times. So you just set up, they come through, you set up again, they come through, and it made it so easy to get all those cool, like I'm in the mix shots that I wasn't able to get during the actual parade, and then you shoot all the crowds and stuff like that after they start the actual parade uh just something right. to think about if you ever i don't know how many people watch marching bands or get involved with marching bands this was kind of my first experience with the whole parade thing so uh just something to think about if you really want that cool shot and you're not allowed to be in there most and you're very right most of these performing groups do not only practices but dress rehearsals because they yeah. typically don't spend much time in those icky uniforms uh, this particular group also did several dress rehearsals that uh, I was able to attend, but they still didn't want me to put my camera out there in the middle of the floor. And so next year, my plan is when they're doing practices, because I'll be involved a lot longer than I was. I was only there two weeks, uh, but they'll they'll now know what I'm doing, and, and I should be able to put the camera in the middle of the floor and have them go around me, in which case I would love to have a lens like this Sigma that we're talking about. This would be awesome. I'm sorry, Olympus. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought I was going to sound really smart there. <laughs> Used the wrong name. 
Anyway, the Olympus 7-14mm to F2.8, $1,300, should be available in June, so look forward to that. There's already pre-order lists on BNH and Amazon, and there'll be links in the show notes, of course. Now, moving on to the meat and potatoes of this episode, and the reason we've kind of cut the news short a little bit here is because we've got a pretty heavy, <laughs> hardcore discussion topic. Uh, we're going to talk about hard drives, storage, and the way to keep your project safe, but first... Mitch, regale us with the story of your current problem. Uh, so, the simple version of the story is that when I, uh, and, and we still have to talk about the standing desk at some point, um, I put my hard drives down on the floor because I wanted them off of the desktop because this, this, dry, this uh, standing desk that I've purchased sits on top of my desktop and moves back and forth. So the place that I used to have my drives is now gone. So I put them on the floor and I stacked them. I actually have a Drobo and I actually have a G-Raid uh, from G-Technology. And I put the G-Raid on top of the Drobo. And guess what? I kicked the G-Raid right over onto the floor. <laughs> oh, no. Brilliant, right? Because that's where my feet are, right? Brilliant. And that's where we got to throw in a sound effect. Huh? Yeah, brilliant. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually fine-ish. I shouldn't say fine totally, but <laughs> I mean, it's working in read mode. Uh, so Apple so far has blessed me. I've used disk utility to try to recover it or repair it. And disk utility on the Mac says, eh, one of the drives is just not happy, but it is in read only mode. So I've made sure everything's backed up, but now I'm in the boat and, and I think the, the real issue, uh, the more I've worked with this is, and I told you in the email, is that, you know, I've been doing computer stuff for 15 years uh, with Macs. And as time has gone on, I have just gotten more and more hard drives. Uh, you know, they started out by the <laughs> ah, funny story. Uh, I don't know. It was 1987, I think, when I got my first Mac. So it's been a long time dating myself here. <laughs> uh, the very first hard drive, external hard drive that I ever purchased was a 700 megabyte drive. Okay. 700 megabytes. 700 megabytes. Not even a gig, 700 megabytes. And what did it cost me used? Da -da -da. <laughs> 700 bucks it cost me for that used drive. <laughs> a friend of mine said, here, I'll let you have this. 700 megabytes for $700. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do not actually have that anymore. So that's one drive <laughs> that I don't have. Uh, but so now here I am. I've got some 500 gigabyte drives. I've actually got a 250 somewhere. Uh, I store some of them over at my mother-in-law's house because... Uh, you know, I, I do backups, theoretically. I, I don't always do them as often as I should. Uh, but I, I take a couple of them and I move them off campus so that they're not here in case the house burns down. You know, the, the major critical files that I need to have are all over at her house. So when I booted this G-RAID drive, I'm okay. It's not like all hell is broken loose and I'm lost. But now the more I sit here, the more frustrated I am because I'm looking through the hard drives that I have and I have 
three copies of this particular folder, and it turns out I have two copies of that folder, and I've just discovered that some of the home movies that I've been taking off of tape and putting on uh, DVD, those are on that drive and that drive over there, but only some of them exist on that one. And so it, I've gotten into this real mess where I've got a whole bunch of small drives. None of them more than a terab or two terabytes is my biggest one, which was the G-Raid that just crapped out. And so I'm like, oh, what the, I've got to start somewhere else. I've got to start over, I think, and, and consolidate things is what I'm really sort of hoping to do. Um, and I've learned a lot of things in the last week that really surprised the hell out of me. Now, so, so there's some true confessions coming up from me, right? Now, I'm putting on my Apple hat because I always wear my Apple hat, right? And I know you're probably going to cringe at you wanting to say something. No, well, okay, so okay. to address the first issue here, and before we even get into storage or anything, um, your multiple copy issue is a very common problem. People often, yeah. uh, they back something up, and then they get it, and they back it up again, and they back it up again, and then, and then pretty soon you have so many backups, you don't know which one is the newest one, which one is the oldest one, which is the one that you need. And for Mac users, and I brought this up here, there is Gemini, and this is a $10 program that will go through and search for all of your duplicate files and then give you the newest, the oldest, and the generations of those. For PC users, I believe the file na- or the, the program is called Dupe Guru, which Dupe Guru does the same thing. It goes through all your files, checks the metadata that's tagged with them, checks the latest revisions, all that stuff, and then gives you the option to just delete the ones that you don't need and to keep the ones you do. If you go to Google right now and you search File Duplication Finder for Mac, you'll find probably six or seven other programs that are available. Read the reviews. I'm not a Mac user, so I just picked that one out of the pile of things that show up. But for PCs, uh, Dupe Guru is really handy. There's also some stuff you can find on SourceForge that really help you manage that. I've been guilty of that as well. I'm a hard drive hoarder. And if I reach over here, right now, I've got like four 1.5 terabyte drives that are just floating around un uncased, you know, laying in piles. And all the stuff on here... Yeah, no labels, no nothing. All the stuff on here has been backed up to another uh, hard drive, but I didn't bother to delete anything off of here. And chances are, like, I'll have a system build later on, and I'll be like, oh, I got a couple of 1.5 terabyte drives laying around. I'll throw it in, and I'll be like, oh, that stuff looks important. Why don't I save that? Well, yeah, yeah, now you have yet another copy of a thing that you don't need. Now, the reason I bring that up is... You get something like this. Uh, these are really cheap. You can buy these on Newegg or Amazon. It's just a hard drive uh, plug-in. You plug this right into the back of your, your bare drive right here, and on the back side of it, it has a power plug and a USB port. This will power right. up your SATA drives. You don't have to put them in any kind of enclosure or anything like that. And as soon as you put this into your system, your main system, these duplicate file detectors will look through this and compare that with everything else that you have and give you a readout on whether the files on here are needed or aren't needed. (laughs) And once you start getting into that sort of file management mode, you can go through and clean up. Like you said, you had duplicate copies of uh, home movies and all these other things. Well, you only need one copy Plus your back, oh, well, you don't need just right. one copy, but you, you need yeah. the most recent copy and a backup of that copy, but you don't need a bunch of random folders floating around. So start with that to clean up your life. Uh, now, moving on, Mitch, uh, before we dive too far into this, can you show people your standing desk? I know this causes the problem, but it's also a solution for your back and everything else. 
Okay. So let me see if this works. We're going to switch over to, I've got two different cameras hooked up. So the first one, let me make sure this is working. We call this the Mitch crotch cam. The, the, yeah, well, it was crotch cam. So, so you can see right now, right? And I think this is actually backwards, which is at least what I'm seeing is backwards. So I'm going to see if I can back way up. So here is, oh, that's my daughter. All right, so it's backwards. <laughs> so <laughs> I, have, I have my iMac, and I've now got a, a monitor that I bought from monoprice.com. Can you still hear me because I backed up from the mic? Yes, I can still hear you. Okay, good. Uh, so I've got these two things sitting on my desktop, right? And here is the desktop. I've got my iPhone here. I've got a trackpad, a keyboard, and my mouse is over here. So this is the surface of the standing desk. And it, and it comes sort of in two pieces. So there's a, a piece up here where I've got the Mac and the, uh, the monitor sitting over here. And, of course, there's Astro. We used to be on my microphone, but that's a whole other story. So there's that one level, and then it comes down to the keyboard level. And then if I come back a little bit, you see there's my floor, and I've got a pad that I've been standing on. And so all of this works works really great. I've got my microphone, and then my desktop. The, the original desktop, you see, is down here, the tan thing. Okay. Right? And it's a curved desk, so I have it in the corner. So it... Over here is, is the rest of my mess that I've moved off to the side, but this is the second part of the desk. So it's curved, and I'm in the corner of the room. So the corner of the room, see, there's a corner. And so you see behind the standing desk, I love this, this tour of my office. Uh, <laughs> so there's one power cord, and here's, here's part of the problem, which we'll get to in just a second, but these cords are an issue. Now, so... The whole point of this desk, and this is called the Very Desk, and this is the 36-inch Pro model, if, if you're looking this up, is that it has these multiple levels, and then it actually is on top of my existing desk, right? Okay. Now, the key to this whole thing, and what I want to do is I've got another webcam. I've got multiple webcams, so I'm going to put this one down. Hopefully not stare at my crown. Oh, it's going to look right at the desk. But I'm going to switch to the other <laughs> webcam, which is on the other side of my desk. And I, so I want you to be able to see. All right, so this is this is on the side of the desk, and you can see the desktop here. Okay. And then the way this thing works is there's a lever. Tilt out just a little bit so you can see the lever. And there's a lever on each side. So you pull the lever, and then the desktop moves, and it slides all the way down on your desk. Right? Okay. So, so now I have a sitting desk. Now, if, if you notice, I'm, I'm, and I'm going to do a switch back to the other camera, because I think it makes more sense that way, because I have it more portable. The one of the things that's a, a a disadvantage of this, and now you can see that here is is the the surface right next to the the old desktop, and I actually have it up a little bit. It'll go down one more notch. It has eleven different levels that you can actually lock it in place. 
uh, and there's my floor. But when I was standing, the front lip of that was about here. And you see that it's actually this way. So the whole desk top moves back towards the back wall as you put it down. What that means is that you're standing quite a bit away from the desk at its highest level, unless you've got a lot of room and you can shove it way back and back at the desktop itself. Okay. What I'm trying to say is there's a lot of movement to it. All right. When, when you lower it and raise it, you're coming in and out of... probably like a foot or two feet from your desk as it raises up because it's collapsing at an angle as opposed to going straight Correct. up and down. Correct. Very good. And, that, and that's okay as long as you understand that that's going to happen. Now, the second part of that that I said is to me is a problem, and it, and it works really well, by the way, in terms of a standard desk or, or all the videos that you watch on their website where you've got a Mac, uh, a keyboard, and they usually use a wireless keyboard and wireless mouse. Okay, okay. I, I tend to have... The Apple extended keyboard, which doesn't come in a wired form, so I end up with a wire. And then, of course, I've got my iPhone here that I want to charge, so I've got two wires. <laughs> and then, guess what? Well, of course, I had those hard drives that were down here underneath the desk, right? Yeah. And those are a mess. Well, they've got cables, and you can't do those wirelessly, so those are wired. And guess what? I've got this USB thing here. Jeez, so man. extra USB things. Or my microphone. Let's not forget the microphone. And oh, by the way, I've got another USB thing here. Holy <laughs> cow, I've man. Got, well, look, I've got your typical uh, card reader, right? you got to have that and a wire for the microphone and a wire. Oh, look, I've got one of those hard drive things that you were just talking about. Yep. Uh, so I do do some bare drive backups. So that has a cable. And the microphone has a cable, and this has a cable, and the iPhone, of course, has a cable, and the keyboard has a cable, and all of these are USB cables. And so I end up with all of these cables in the back, right? And all these things have got plugged into my iMac. And then all of those cables run down, some of those cables run down, of course, the back of the thing. So all of this cables and these external things that I have what's really ruining my experience with the stand-up desk. Wow. Now, now, but, that, but that's because I've gone with this portable unit, or not portable, of course, but if you get a typical, I don't think I need the, the uh, external guy anymore. So I'm yeah, switch you can back switch back over to your regular camera. Uh, for those of you listening, guys, uh, Mitch just basically gave us a complete <laughs> tour of his office. About them. Um, so for video viewers, you know, you're seeing everything, but uh, for listeners, you might want to check out this video if you want to see more of Mitch's desk, as well as some of the items I've been holding <laughs> up. Uh, that doesn't really come through in the audio portion of the podcast. Very true. Uh, so so that's, that's the problem that I've had, is dealing with those cables that are hanging off the back of all my devices. And, you know, I've got the external monitor, which, of course, has to plug in, which I forgot to mention. Of course, it has a power cord. So there's all of these cords hanging off the back of the dadgum thing. Now, if you have one of the fancy standing desks that actually raises and lowers itself, right, which is they're more expensive. They're about $1,000, most of them. 
Some of them you can get for the six, $700 price range, but the whole desk surface goes up and down as one piece, which is, you know, I mean, typically what you would be doing uh, with your desk is that you've got all your hard drives and your external things and all of your cables managed. And then, you know, if the whole surface rises, then you don't have to deal with these cables and, and getting really taut because some of the things are on the floor and it's, it's just been a little bit more for me difficult wise to get adjusted to this kind of thing because of the cables, because I have so many different pieces and I don't, you know, for a typical user that only has their computer and a keyboard and they're using a wireless keyboard and a wireless mouse, uh, it works really well to have this whole thing port, you know, moving up and down. And I do adjust quite often. I will sit down and then I'll stand up and I'll sit down and I'll feel like I'm getting more exercise during the day. Uh, but that cable management's been a real problem for me so far with this particular setup. Well, one way to reduce your cable bundle going down to your machine um i know you have a hub but they make way better hubs than that this is right here <laughs> amazon actually has their own brand and this hub is a seven port there's a nine and a 12 port flavor and so you can buy a bungeed version of this cable that will stretch out and collapse as it goes out your usb3 back to your machine so one cable to rule them all and then this cluster on top of your system the only issue you have now is you've got all those extra hard drive bays and everything else laying down on the ground where is there even room for that on your standing desk if 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 uh no they would probably still be on the floor if i had you mean as a one piece unit that moved up and down yeah exactly i would probably i would probably still have them on the floor to be honest with you i've got tired of them being up so high they don't, they don't have a need to be on my desk because I don't have to touch them, right? If I don't have to touch them, I sort of want them out of my way. I obviously don't want to kick them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> kicking them was, was part of the problem that got me started in all this mess in the first place. Uh, but uh, I, I don't really need them on my surface of my desk. And I'm trying to go more minimal. Bump. Sorry, microphone to minimize what's on my desk surface so that I don't become a clutter fool. Um, but I, so I'd rather have those be down. And so there will always be some cable management, even with a power cord that's got to be on the, on the ground. Although there are some standing desks that have a, a strip on the back. So you can plug everything into that one strip. And then there's only one power cord that goes up and down. But that's all power that still isn't dealing with the USB cords or Thunderbolt cords or whatever. Yeah, maybe it's some the, uh, the zip ties there. and Velcro strips yeah. with like the goop on either side may be a way to sort of like at least secure stuff. Um, right. I don't know. That's that's a hard one. I've, I've never worked Some on a standing desk. When I route all my cables, I route them once, zip tie them all down, and then keep them permanent in bundles. And if any changes need to be made, I redress everything. Uh, even right. then, like, that's a nightmare. And, it, you know, you sit down for a day to get everything to be just so. <laughs> and if you want to move your monitor yeah. after you've bundled everything, well, your monitor cable is in that bundle. So now you have to unbundle it and move it to some other place, you know. Right. That's a hassle. So, um, yeah. Moving when, on back. When, when we can oh. get rid of cables, I'll be excited. Yeah, I don't think that's really? going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> uh, nope. 
Uh, now, for your storage needs, though, and something that you might want to consider, uh, since that's kind of where we're headed, is what about a network-attached storage system as opposed to a storage system that's plugged directly into your system itself? If you don't need extreme speeds and you just need a competent way to back stuff up, a wireless uh, network with an attached storage device off of a router or a switch will allow you access without having all the cables attached to your system. And then you only have system editing drives uh, that are for um, temporary backup and for speedy editing. Now, right. that's bringing me into my own setup here. And I'll, I've got this all written down. I had to like map out my own <laughs> settings because they're so complicated. Um, basically what I do for my storage needs, and I'm a PC user, so this does not necessarily apply to Macs because uh, a lot of the, the Macs aren't upgradable, or if they are upgradable, you can only upgrade certain things and it becomes an issue. But for me, I have a one terabyte SSD that I do my main editing on. My assets are backed up to a RAID 1 drive setup, which is a mirrored drive, so I have two drives with the exact same data on it, and, and it's backed up to that, and my assets are also on the SSD. I do all my editing on the SSD and my mirrored drive is my backup temporarily until I finish a project. I also save all of my Adobe files to uh, G Drive as well as uh, BitTorrent Sync with whoever I'm working with if they have a copy of those files. Once I've finished a project, I use Adobe's uh, cloud feature, they or not cloud feature, a condensing feature in Premiere that allows you to only save the assets that are used in a particular project. You can break that down into a smaller chunk, and if you have a bunch of extemporaneous clips that you didn't use in your final cut, those will just get disregarded. So I save that into a small format, and I keep that on the 4-terabyte mirrored drive on my main editing bay, and I take all the other assets, and I kick them over to my uh, FreeNAS server. My FreeNAS server is an 8 by 4 terabyte uh, drive <laughs> system, and depending on the contracts that I filled out or, or what have you, I'm required to retain data for X number of months, years, or whatever. So that is my long-term storage solution. You don't really want to edit off the FreeNAS server because it's over Ethernet or Wi-Fi, so you're talking, you know, 100 megs if you're lucky. And we just had a server dropout. That was wonderful. Hopefully, Mitch shows back up here in a second. What the heck happened? Uh, I got a message that said video, video end, or session ended because of a network error, and so it crashed. Well, we're back, guys. I don't know how the live broadcast works, if we dropped out or not. I'll edit this section out in post. But where I was going with that is you don't want to edit on a uh, network attached storage server because it's just too slow for file transfers but it's great for backup and you can put a ton of stuff into that in order to uh, you know have all the storage in the world and you can keep upgrading it uh, depending on what you want to do mine is a freenas server that is a diy solution uh, there are also a bunch of off-the-shelf solutions and i've got those all written down but mitch what are you kind of trying to move to do you just want one file system to rule them all do you want to have remote access as well as uh, in-office access? What are you going for? <laughs> oh, there's the question, isn't it? Um, well, let me, let me also say that I, I, I really appreciate what you just went through in terms of describing what you're doing. 
for many of us, and that's me putting on my Mac hat, uh, I'm going to confess a couple of things. I'm going to answer your question as I go, all right? Uh, one of the things that some of the words that you use uh, may not be obvious to everybody. They weren't obvious to me two weeks ago. I knew about maybe some of them like NAS, which is network. Attach storage. Attach storage. Thank you. But that means that it's not physically necessarily on your machine. It's attached to a router somewhere and you're accessing it either via Ethernet or Wi-Fi, right? That's correct. And and so there are several of those where maybe you set up an NAS for your house and your family can all access those common files and have their own storage or whatever. So it would be external storage to their machine, but it's not physically attached to their machine, which is a cool device. Um, I'm very interested in that. Um, I'm also interested in having very fast access to stuff. Now, I will. this is where the confession part comes in. Uh, I The G-Raid that I bought the from G-Technology, I went to the Apple store and I said, I want some fast storage. And they said, oh, look, this one's got Thunderbolt on it. All right. So, <laughs> and, and if you go through marketing and you go through, and, and I've been looking at a lot of different drives in the last couple of weeks. So they all say, you know, like if it's a Thunderbolt drive, that it says up to 10, 10 gigabytes per second speed. And the more I've learned, the more I'm like, Ooh, I thought, well, hell, I'm going to get this thing home and I'm going to copy things lightning fast, right? I'm, I'm going to put 10 gigabytes of stuff and I'm going to transfer it in a second. Well, pfft, turns out that ain't anywhere close to true. Thunderbolt can't handle that, especially for video and other kinds of things. But we're still limited back in the old days of 7,200 RPM, the speed of the drive spinning as well as the tiny little ports that they put on them to send data out. <laughs> so typically with like a USB three, for example, can is rated to go up to five gigabytes, right? In terms of transfer speed. If you can find a hard drive out there, that's a single drive. That's not in a RAID or whatever that transfers more than 200 megabytes per second. You have found a, cherished item and you should keep that baby <laughs> most of them that i'm finding typically are 150 megabytes per second to maybe 250 uh when you start putting a raid in there this is the thing i've learned recently let's say you have a two disc raid well you can typically if you're using it as raid zero and raid one is slower when these are the other things i've learned because raids have different so let's uh, talk about the raid real quick before we dive into that so everybody knows. And I actually wrote a little chart in the show notes. You can go look at this. Uh, raid zero basically means that there is no backup. You're daisy chaining hard drives together in order to read from all those hard drives simultaneously and achieve the maximum output you can possibly do. But if any drive fails, you lose everything. RAID 1 is parity, which means it's a duplication of your data across multiple drives. If you have drive 1 and drive 2, it copies everything that's on drive 1 to drive 2 as well. And if you have three drives, it does the same thing. All three drives will have exact same copies of the same thing. Now, you do have RAID 2 through 4, but those are not generally used because they're inefficient and they don't make sense in most applications. But then you have RAID 5. This is a striping pattern. RAID 5 basically 
uh, duplicates little sections of the data and adds error correction into that stripe that, as it writes across all three, four, or five drives. The problem with RAID 5 is that you need at least three drives in order to ob- obtain a RAID 5 array. And the backup for that is mathematical based on the number of drives and the striping information across those drives and so on. Then you have RAID 10, which is also very common, and that's basically a combo of RAID 0 and RAID 1 that allows you a mirrored drive and a striped drive, uh, basically the fast version, the RAID 0 version, combined together. But it takes a lot of drives to achieve this, and that is what is popular if you have a ton of drives to deal with. Then, I don't have these written down here, but uh, you get into even wackier stuff. If you're a free NAS user, you have RAID Z, which RAID Z uses a hybrid of these formats and uh, does software management. That's why it requires a lot of RAM and a lot of processing in order to keep track of the data, rebuild information and stuff like that. So the parity is even more complex than it would be in your typical standard RAID drive. Now, Mitch, back to what you were saying, you're (laughs) having trouble with these uh, hard drives, not putting out as much as the advertised lightning bolt connector is capable yeah. of doing or thunderbolt excuse yeah. me yeah and 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 so that's been an eye-opening lesson and by the way the more you spend right the faster you're going to get so when you were talking about the raid five for example there are a lot of people that talk about the and it's not pegasus is it is yeah it pegasus? pegasus is a Brand from, um, right. I think, uh, uh, shoot, what's the name of the company? Anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. They make yeah. high-end stuff. So, so t- typically, some of those things are costing $2,000, and they have typically RAID 5 in them, and they may have six drives, right? Yeah. So you may have 12 to 16 terabytes of stuff. Um, and, and let's not forget the fact that once you start doing mirroring, then if you, if you buy an eight terabyte raid and you're doing mirroring, it's really only four terabytes, right? Exactly. You You lose space for your data redundancy. So a lot of people apparently don't know that either. Uh, so anyway, long story short, if you want like one of those Pegasus systems and you pay two grand for it, then you can get close to one gigabyte transfer per, per second transfer speeds. And that's because of the striping and they're grabbing all the data off the different drives and shoving them down the big pipes. So that makes it really awesome. But of course, I'm not going to spend $2,000 for that kind of <laughs> stuff. Right? <laughs> I mean, I might go buy a $2,000 lens, but oh God, I hate paying for that kind of money for hard drives. All right. So back to trying to answer your question. Here I was buying a G-RAID Thunderbolt because I thought I was going to have this blazing speed. Lo and behold, the fastest it will do is about 150 uh, megabytes per second. And so I was always frustrated with the speed, and now I've learned why. Even though it has two drives in it, uh, it was not as incredibly fast as I thought it was going to be. But it's, it's two terabytes, and I've got probably six or eight terabytes worth of stuff that I probably... So, so what I'm thinking about doing is either getting uh, one large eight terabyte drive to start with to say, all right, I'm going to consolidate all of this crap that I've got spread around all over creation, and I'm going to put it on one drive, and then I'm going to use my other devices for, for backups to save stuff from particular folders. And I, probably, I might even partition that, but as long as I can say everything's on drive Y 
or the physical box, you know, drive Y the box, because it might have multiple logical drives in it. I know where everything is and it's on there. And then I can start backing it from there and using other drives. Uh, and, and I may end up doing a RAID. But with my iMac, I've got a one terabyte drive on the iMac, but it's one of those Fusion drives, right? And yeah. it's really pretty fast. It's um, I've done some testing with the the black magic uh, testing device, you know, where it can test hard drives. The speed tester. <laughs> right, speed test. Because it has an SSD attached to it. So the, it's like 750 gigs is physical hard drive space. And then it's got a 250 gig SSD to it. But I was getting 350 megabytes read and write per second off of that. So I'll probably be using that for all of my editing and storage of my operating system and then putting everything else. Once I've finished editing, I'll put it on the slower devices and then I'll back up from the slower devices to the really slow devices. That uh, Drobo unit that I have down there that you may have seen while I was doing the the video show, uh, that's a USB 2 drive. Yeah, you got to upgrade to the USB 3 oh version. God. Otherwise, you're only going to get 30 or 40 megs max right I'm getting 15 out of it. It's, it's like pulling teeth to get anything in and out of that thing. And I, and it's, it's it's got a lot of data on it, so I've got to get it off of there. Anybody wants to buy a USB Drobo, uh, USB two Drobo, let me know because uh, that's going on the market as soon as I'm done. Anyway, so so I've done a lot of learning. Uh, don't fall for the Thunderbolt because I was about to buy a Thunderbolt two drive because <laughs> this, this iMac has a Thunderbolt two port on it, right? I'm going well. I want the fastest damn thing I can get now. Now I have my eyes are enlightened and I finally learned some stuff about RAID. I really like the Drobo because it's, it's very much a RAID-esque kind of thing, but I didn't have to learn how it handles all that stuff on the inside. You just shove disks in and out. When it tells you this disk is full or that disk is bad, you just pull one out. It manages all that kind of stuff. I didn't really want to learn a whole lot about RAID. Because I've I've already learned a whole lot about filmmaking and photography and everything else. I don't know if I can fill anything else in my head. <laughs> but you sort of have to when you start dealing with all of these files. And you have to come up with a management system. And I think I'm going to look at the Gemini that you were talking about. I have recently also uh, been looking at a couple of tools. Uh, it, it's one I when I've downloaded that I have a free copy of right now. It's called NeoFinder. Okay. And the key, the key to those things, just as the lesson, I mean, you can use any kind of device to create a, uh, you know, catalog, but typically most of the cheapy things mean that those drives have to be plugged in. Yeah. And what you really need to have is a tool that will catalog a drive. And even when you take that drive offline, it still knows what that drive has on it. So when you do this global search, you say, where are all my duplicates, like you were talking about before? It needs to have catalog of all your online as well as your offline drives so that you can finally get this thing wrapped around your head as to where all of those bits and pieces are, which one, which ones are new, which ones are old, and all that kind of stuff. So thank you. I'm going to look at Gemini. I'm going to look at a couple of different things, but NeoFinder has that cataloging thing that I was looking for. How many drives do you have laying around for goodness sakes, Mitch? Well, uh, 
of those external ones, like like with the the dock that you have, I've got eight. I think of those. Dang. Okay. Oh, four of them are like are like backups. Um, I've got two of these Western Digital drives, and I've got like I said, a couple of them. Well, there's. So you've kind of already let this situation was... get out of hand it's, beyond well, a normal. It's, yeah, it's it's way out of hand in terms of catalog management and all that kind of stuff, and especially with the family. Now each one of them has their own computer, and they're like, "Hey, Dad, can you show me the files? You know that we shot from vacation last year, which is where I really think that NAS drive idea would be awesome. So I can take all of the family stuff." And put it out there and say, well, you guys have access to it. There's there's all the family photos and the family videos are out there and everybody can have them as opposed to coming to me and they say, well, dad, I need that photo from 10 years ago. And so that's that's one thing that I'm really looking at as well as an, as an NAS. Well, let's start with the simple stuff for a basic user <laughs> and then we'll work up to your situation there. So I've got kind of a list here of the cheapest and easiest ways to continue to move forward with backups and copies and extra copies. For Windows users, uh, there's a program called Second Copy, and for Mac users, there's Free File Sync. Uh, both of these, what they do is you pick a folder on OneDrive, and you pick a folder on another drive, and it will automatically go through, check for the latest version, and mirror it to that other drive. So if you just have your, your one computer, and you have multiple drives in it, and you don't really have any sort of RAID set up or anything like that, and you don't want to mess with that, this at least puts your files on multiple hard drives, so if you do have a hard drive failure, you can still rescue your data. Now, there's some caveats to this sort of methodology of working. One is if you delete a file, unless you have a setup that allows you to go with versioning of those files, it goes through and says, okay, he deleted this file. Obviously, he doesn't want it. I'm going to delete it from all these other subfolders. So you do have to be careful about how you're using it. But the uh, free file sync is very free, as the title states, so you don't have to pay for it. So that's a very cheap option. The second copy for Windows users, I think that's like a $15 license fee to, to get a copy of that. And both of them have a ton of options for when you back up so that you're not eating up uh, hard drive speed while you're trying to do editing or anything like that. They have revision options. They have versioning, so it'll go through and mirror up to five versions of that folder in different locations at um, different increments, so every three days, every five days, every ten days, so if you want to go back in time, sort of like the uh, Mac Time Machine, if you're familiar with that, right. Mitch. That is the right. cheapest way to just jump in and start doing backups of your stuff, so at least it's on multiple hard drives. Now, moving from that step to the next step is a physical RAID controller. Uh, most motherboards that are modern for Windows users have the option of RAID 0, 1, 5, and 10 on those. And as long as you set it up in hardware, not in software, don't use software RAIDs. Those are bad. Windows users never use software RAID. Those will just go <laughs> go south on you. have all kinds of problems. Don't do that. Uh, use either the uh, worst case scenario, use the one that's available on your motherboard. And you set that up in your BIOS before you get started. They'll usually be a hotkey, hit F10 or F11 or something like that to get to it. And set up your RAID drives before you install Windows. If you don't want to do that, the other option, which is a good option, is to actually get a dedicated PCIe SATA 3 RAID card. Uh, you can get the cards with four ports on them. They're about $30 to $40. You can buy them on Amazon. This is a dedicated card that all it does is RAID drives together and manage your RAID. 
The great thing about that is that it's its own dedicated device. It takes care of everything, and you don't have to worry about relying on software, on your motherboard failing, or anything else. The other nice thing about that is that it's kind of its own thing, and Windows just sees it as a logical drive. If you need to back up something or something like that, and the drive fails, you just shuck the drive, pull it out, plug it in, and you can get all your stuff off of it, no big deal. The other thing to think about when you're working with that sort of uh, system is that you need to start out with that. Uh, Windows 7 in particular, if you don't load the drivers for a uh, PCIe RAID controller before you uh, get it completely installed, if you install it afterwards, it may have trouble seeing it and you won't get the RAID support that you're looking for and sometimes it just won't even show up. There are ways to trick it, but if you just start out ahead of time and install those when you're installing Windows 7, uh, that'll help you a lot. Windows 8, it's not as big of an issue. They have addressed those, but that's a $40 range. So we've gone from free basically to $40. The next level up is some of the boxes Mitch was actually showing, and these are in the range of $100 to $200, and they're anywhere from... Uh, two bays all the way up to four bays with options of RAID 0, RAID 1, RAID 5, and RAID 10 internally. Uh, these use traditional RAIDs, so if you need to move the drives from one RAID system to another, they should be able to be detected and everything should work okay. Uh, the issue with these is the quality control is all over the place. Um, I've got a link in the show notes, and you can just click on that and look through. There is everything under the sun from really cheap plasticky cases with uh, poor processors handling the RAID all the way up to super expensive stuff, all the way to stuff that's just like an external card with an ESATA port that you plug into your system that's all wacky and not really the best way to go. So that's kind of the gray market area. If you're going to go that route, make sure you read the reviews, find one that you think is quality and that everybody is you know happy with before you invest. The next level up is actually the Drobo that Mitch was talking about. Don't ever buy the USB 2 version of the Drobo. <laughs> that is slow. Even mine, as, the one I'm selling? Yeah, Come that on. one is slow as molasses. Never, <laughs> never, unless you just want stuff to stay there and not do anything with it. Uh, Drobo Dude, sells wait. a 4 bay and an 8 bay USB 3.0 version. Uh, you can Let me achieve. Ask you a question. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I, I got to interrupt you on this one because one of the reasons I quit using the old Drobo so much is because the, at least the two, 2.0 version, the fan is loud as hell. Is the Are the newer ones quieter at all? Uh, they are quieter, they? and there are a bunch of hacks out there available to replace the muffin fan with one of those ultra-silent, quiet fans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So and it uses a traditional fan pin header, so it's just a matter of finding a fan that's the right size and shoving it into the back of that. Uh, I've even seen people where they disable the actual fan and then just put like a monster muffin fan behind that uh, behind the unit where the vent holes are and i mean unless you're in an unair conditioned apartment and you are dealing with the midst of the summer your drives don't tend to get so hot as to damage them you right. just want to make sure you keep the controlling board on there and the cpu cool enough that it's you know below 90 degrees or so and you should be fine um right. don't take that as strict advice because you could still burn something <laughs> up fans are there for a reason but yeah if you look for uh, drobo hacks you can find a ton on upgrading the fans uh that was a marketable uh, marketed change in the new version though is that they did quiet the fan down but the four bay version uh with usb3 you're talking uh read and write speeds in the 220 meg range which is 
pretty decent. That's about what you'd expect out of a couple drives chained together. And you can pick up one of those units for $250. Now, the downside to getting a Drobo is that Drobo uses proprietary technology to raid your drives together. Because of that, if your, if your drives fail and the Drobo is okay, you're fine. But if the Drobo fails and your drives are okay, the only way to rescue your data is to take all the hard drives out and put them in another Drobo unit. If you put it in a Drobo unit, it'll find everything and it'll recalculate the size of everything and figure out what the drives are doing and, and you'll be fine but if you put it into any other raid device it won't know what the hell it is and you won't be able to rescue anything so keep that in mind um, you are kind of locking yourself into a system but on the plus side as mitch mentioned they're super easy to use they're made to be ultra user friendly it's basically no work on your part to set up you just stick drives in follow the directions they've got some cute little prompts that are like do this do that you know and like everything's good to go so that's what i usually recommend for people who don't want to get technical but need a lot of storage with some backup solutions uh they're only 250 dollars now, from there, you jump up to the more expensive options, and now we're talking what uh, Mitch is interested in is, is DIY or, or NAS network-attached storage systems. Some of the Drobo units and many of the other Synology uh, Promise, which makes the Pegasus units you were talking about, uh, they right. have both a USB port as well as a network-attached port. Uh, the network port, you plug it into your router, and you can share drives, you can add user rights and everything else and make it available for uh, different people, different computers, different systems. Only share certain things with certain computers and so on, and you can get nitpicky with your rights. So, like, you only want your kids to be able to see some movies in your collection but not all the movies in your collection or, you know, whatever you want to do. You can do all this kind of stuff. But those get really expensive. Uh, a Synology rig, a four bay, I believe, is in the five hundred dollar range. And if you go to the eight bay units, uh, they're the eighteen eighteen series. Uh, those can run you all the way up to a thousand dollars. The Promise, uh, those raid boxes are anywhere from five hundred all the way up to four thousand dollars. So if you really want to spend a lot of money, that's where you go. Now the option I use is FreeNAS. Uh, this is a DIY option. I've got some links in the show notes to my build particularly. And this allows you complete control and saves you a lot of money and gives you better hardware, arguably, than what you get in some of these more expensive rigs. But you have to build it yourself, and you have to go through the entire process yourself of putting it together. What FreeNAS is is basically a Linux BSD distribution that allows you to set up a NAS server in your home and get all your drives configured in RAID Z or RAID 1 through 10, whatever you want, and then share those independently throughout the house. It also allows plugins, so you can use like BitTorrent Sync, you can sync files directly to that, you can set up Plex if you want to use a video viewing experience, and there's a ton of other options if you... I don't recommend torrenting things, but if you torrent stuff, you can set it up so that as soon as you download a torrent, it goes straight to your FreeNAS, and your FreeNAS manages all your torrent downloads and everything else uh, independent of your main computer that you're using. Uh, the problem with that much granularity is that you do have to learn how to use everything, and it's a heck of a learning curve. Uh, the other thing is... Basically, you're going to want a ton of RAM in this thing. Uh, my FreeNAS has 16 gigs of RAM because I have a lot of hard drive space, and I've actually been told that I should probably get more RAM in there if possible. Wow. So the build right now that I have is an i3 uh, 
Pentium processor with just a run-of-the-mill motherboard and an extra four-port um, four RAID card in there. So the original motherboard had six drive bays, or uh, six SATA ports, excuse me, and then the add-on gave me another four. So I have a total of 10 drives that I can install into the unit. Um, the RAM was about $65, $70. The processor was about 100 bucks. The uh, motherboard was like $40. So you're talking about three to $500, depending on what spare parts you have laying around. And then you really want to be careful what network uh, card you use on this. Uh, most people recommend that you use uh, an, an Intel-based um, network card because otherwise you're going to get limits in the amount of data transfer. You won't be able to max out your Ethernet connection. So keep that in mind if you want to speed up your drive. Especially what I run into is I have one despair drive laying in there that's a three terabyte drive for my wife that's got movies and stuff like that on it. And if she's streaming movies and I'm trying to back stuff up at the same time, my backups go from you know 50 or 60 megs to you know 10 or 15 megs, and then it can take an entire evening for me to back up my stuff. So that's one thing to think about. But for your situation, Mitch, that seems like the best option with the exception of editing where you'd want something else. Now, right. I, I keep talking and I, I got one more thing to say and then I'll let you jump in. <laughs> your Fusion Drive uh, on your new Mac computer is kind of a farce. And the reason I say that is because it's an SSD tied with a spinning drive. For basic uh, application launching and, and stuff like that, it's fine because it uses the SSD as sort of a buffer for the main hard drive, and they have an algorithm that like looks at everything that you're using on your system and determines what you use the most and then loads that on the SSD so that it loads faster. But if you're looking for faster editing speeds, you're not going to get that with your Fusion Drive because your projects are going to have more than 120 gig worth of, of footage right. to work with. And now you're basically 100% relying on your spinning drive, and all that's doing is like launching your applications and stuff. So then you're limited to your 7200 RPM, uh, you know, 110, 120 meg a second transfer rate from your spinning drive. So you're still going to want to edit off of something else besides that, and and use your Fusion drive for just launching your applications and stuff like that. So to get good speed. You're, I'm kind of aiming you back <laughs> at the direction that I go, where I have a dedicated SSD for editing. I have a dedicated drive for my normal operating system and everything else. And then the storage is ancillary to that, and I back up every night or every so many nights or whatever. Um, right. But if you want to share with your family, the easiest way for that sort of thing, especially if it's small files, you know, a few video clips here and there, um, pictures and so on, uh, a, f a network attached storage system is an excellent solution and FreeNAS is one of the easiest, well, not easiest, one of the cheapest ways <laughs> to, yeah. to dive in. Um, there are defaults uh, for FreeNAS and if you aren't trying to use anything complicated, they do have a nice GUI where you log in via a web page and you just click on a few things, select your drives, create a pool, and then you, you go. And if you're not trying to do anything more complicated than that with like user rights and stuff, that's fine. I screwed up a couple of years ago or a year ago. Um, I was transferring a bunch of stuff when I upgraded the amount of hard drive space I had in there, and I accidentally copied it over as uh, read access only. So oh. um, I couldn't delete anything off of ah. it, and I couldn't remember what I had set my administrative password to in order to uh -oh. do that. So then... I had to I had to copy it all out 
and then put it back in again under and I ended up there's a a way uh, Linux users probably know this better than I do. I had to go look up a tutorial on it, but you can go into the command prompt and you can actually get in and you can change the permissions for everything. But it took a lot of work and a lot of resetting and stuff. So those are the sort of things you can get into and. I say that with the FreeNAS, but that doesn't that's not just limited to the FreeNAS. Once you start getting into network attacks storage, like uh, the Synology boxes and the Promise boxes, those are going to have that sort of issue where you can set up stuff that can actually, you know, poke you in the eye. It can really just like mess up your day. So you have to be very careful about your setup. Now, back right. to you, Mitch. I've been talking long enough. What do you think about this whole mess of information I've just thrown at you like a rock? It's it's awesome. I really appreciate the the entire conversation. I'm sure many of our listeners, readers, watchers will appreciate it as well. And they're probably some of them are going, "Oh, I wish I could talk," yeah. but um, because everybody has an opinion, of course. I, I really appreciate your input. Uh, I do have a question for you because I keep running into this. If you're setting up your own NES or uh, I, Western Digital seems to be one of the most popular external raw drives. I have, like I said, several of them. I, you held one up. Um, you had a green one. Yes. I tend to buy the green ones. But most of the things I say, if you're going to do a RAID or an NAS, you should be using the red ones. Do you know what the difference is? Okay, so there's a few issues here. If you just go get cheapo hard drives off of the shelf... Uh, some of them have a spin-down cycle. So the drives de determine that they aren't being used for a while, and they do what they call parking the head. There's a head that actually moves across the disk, and it's spinning around detecting data, but when the drive's not being used to save energy, it moves over to the side and just sits down. Well, that's fine for a drive that's just normally in your desktop. You, you know, if you've ever tried to click on a, a large drive and it takes a second for it to spin up and then you can access everything, that's what's going on. Well... Right. In a RAID situation, your RAID controller wants instant access to whatever information that is across all the drives. And if two of your drives are awake and one of your drives is asleep, it says, uh-oh, this drive has failed. And that's bad. Ah, ah. So um, a lot of the drives, Western Digital is a good one. Their greens and their red drives are, are very decent. They're designed to circumvent this problem. Uh, they also have special error detection algorithms and everything else built inside that are supposed to help... Uh, retain data if the drive fails so you can still get into read mode uh, the other company that makes them and you got to be careful seagate has nas dedicated drives as well uh, they do their new ones are pretty good but a few of the revisions previously the st three hundred thousand and one series for example um had parking issues as well where the drive would just automatically throw up a flag and say i'm dead because it didn't boot up fast enough with the rest of the drives when it fell asleep um so you got to be real careful of that uh, make sure if you're doing this for something professional where you're going to actually store things that are important to you and you know you're getting paid for use the better drives spend a little bit more money right. more money get the greens or get the reds the reds are top notch the greens are uh, i believe they're 50 5400 rpm so they're slower access but they're dedicated and designed specifically for uh, nas systems now the caveat is western digital actually kind of jerks people around because the only difference between their red green drives and their regular drives is a firmware update really yeah so the internals are all the same but then it's a firmware update on the controller chip that changes the way the drives work so 
uh, that's where you're at with hard drives. That kind of answer your question, Mitch? Yeah. Uh, so you're telling me these green drives are only 5,400? Uh, some of them are 5,400. There are a few that aren't, and some of them are variable. So they say up to 7,200 RPM on them. And if they say up to, that means that depending on where it's reading on the head and how fast the uh, head is moving, it could go all the right. way down to 5,400 or all the way up to 7,200. And that's why they're quote-unquote green is because they do power efficiency savings. Right. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'm trying to read the label on this one, and it doesn't say anywhere on here on the label about whether it's 5,400 or 7,200. So. Yeah, and I can find some specs on that. You caught me off guard here. Otherwise, I would have those up mm-hmm. already. Green. I thought you knew everything, DJ, about everything. Every time I ask a question, you're supposed to know the damn answer. Sometimes you throw me for a curve when I'm not <laughs> expecting it because I have to go refresh on uh, whatever subject it is since I haven't looked at it for a while. Um, green drive... RPM. Yeah, so I'm looking here, and it says variable RPM on it, and that's why they're not labeled on there. So they do swing up and down. Uh, They do have some specifically labeled 7200 RPM uh, green drives, but it just depends on what you buy. There are a bunch of one terabyte uh, green drives that are 5400 RPMs only, and several flavors that are variable. So keep that in mind wow. when you're drive shopping. Yeah. I mean, it, this one, I, I'm really stunned, and I, I, I don't think, I didn't think I had this one this long, but the date actually says June 2009. I can't have had this that long, can I? June 2009, wow. Uh, how big a drive is it, one terabyte? It's a one terabyte drive. Yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, they did make one terabyte drives that far back, Uh that's probably wow. a slower one, I would suspect. Yeah, um, yeah I would suspect. The, the reason, it, I don't want to get too far into drive technology, but <laughs> um, hard drives, when they get up to larger sizes, there's a maximum platter density. So each spinning platter, they can only put so much data on. And right. every year they come up with a new way or a new trick or whatever to add more data to each one of those platters. But previous to that, they just added more platters. And the more stuff you have to spin around, because they're basically pancaked together, the, the slower the motor can go in order to drive all that. And then the more heads you have to use in order to read off of it and so on. And it's right. cheaper to make them slower than it is to make them faster because now you have to balance everything. You have cylinders moving at high speeds and so on. 7,200 RPMs is nothing to laugh at when you actually see it moving in real life. It could yeah. take your finger off. And if a drive didn't have a case on it and broke for some reason, it could chuck it right into your eyeball or your head or something like that, you know, maybe hurt you or kill you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) where you have it. Yeah. So just make sure you read all the information on your drives. A lot of these have all kinds of weird ratings and data. Uh, Most of the, these days, most of the new modern drives will have a NAS rating that'll say that it's rated for um, RAID configuration or so on. And if you just look for that, you're usually in good shape. Uh, Western Digital is one of the main manufacturers, but Hitachi as well as uh, Seagate make NAS versions of their drives with this firmware disabled for the parking of the heads and all that business. God, I mean, there is so much dang stuff to learn here. I mean, I just clicked on uh, Western Digital Red 3-terabyte NAS drive on Amazon, and, and lo and behold, it's only a 5,400 RPM. Yep. Uh, I... I... <sighs> I get, I, I, 
I don't always think, okay? I, I, I admit it. I'm, I'm sorry. But I just had a basic assumption in my head that all of the large drives like these, that's, whether these are three-inch, what do yeah. you call these, three or they're fives? Three. Uh, they're, yeah, th- 3.5. I, I made the assumption that all of them were 7,200 and that the two and a half, the ones that you shoved in the laptops in the old days, those were the ones that were 5,400. So I've had a, quite a few lessons here today, and I'm embarrassed to admit some of them. One other uh, kind of caveat, uh, the Raptor drives that are 10,000 RPM, those are actually, the physical drive is only a 2.5-inch drive. It's not a 3.5-inch drive, but they strap it to a heat sink, and so the heat sink is actually what makes it a 3.5-inch drive as opposed to a 2.5-inch drive. And you can take those wow. off if you have adequate cooling and go to the skinnier format, but you have to cool them because spinning at that speed, the motors heat up, and it needs to yeah, dissipate a lot of heat. Yeah, that's that's one reason why SSDs are going to rock when we finally get some really big ones that are cheap, right? You know, one-terabyte SSDs are down to like 325 to 350 right now. Um, I have two one terabyte SSDs in my current system that I'm working on and it's lovely. Uh, one other warning for drives and then we'll wrap this up is, uh, if you see the word IntelliPower on the drive, uh, be wary of the write speeds because the IntelliPower setup, and you'll see these on the six terabyte drives, basically is doing what I was describing before where it's varying the speed based on huh. how it wants to prioritize your data. And it's doing this to be more power efficient, which is great if you're running some kind of server farm. But if you are an individual user trying to get your data off as fast as possible, uh, that could be a pain in the posterior. Wow. Also, six and eight terabyte drives are not supported in all uh, NAS enclosures. So, if you buy a Dobro for or a Drobo, for example, make sure you check because a lot of them are only rated for four terabyte drives per bay, not six or eight. Even though six and eight drives are available, or at least six, I haven't seen any eight for sale specifically. But I thought they were on the market now. Wow. <laughs> So this this one Western Digital Red that I'm looking at, look at that, says IntelliPower right there. 5,400 RPM IntelliPower. So that one's off my list. Thanks for that tip. No problem. Hard drives and computer stuff can get really complicated really fast. And you already have to, as a filmmaker, know everything about all your camera gear, filming, all the techniques you need to know. And then you're like, okay, now I need to edit this. How do I store properly? And a lot of people just give up on that portion and kind of run risky, you know, like, oh, I have a hard drive. I'll just put it on there. Oh, no, everything's lost. How do I get this back? You don't. You're just SOL, man. Well, and, and, and one of the things I just read, by the way, and I'll dig up the link to the article and put it in the show notes, is that SSDs have to have power to them. And if you take power away for more than seven days, they start losing data. So uh, That's sort of true, but not really true. Um, okay. Okay. So SSDs have, Sorry. Oh no, that's fine. I'm not going <laughs> to dive too deep into that, but basically, uh, most modern SSDs, um, they have, uh, a data erosion where if the charge that's held by the cell starts to drop, 
it will cause more errors. So usually the result is if you don't have power to them for a while, you just have an error correction algorithm that goes through and refreshes the voltage levels. And it depends on whether it's an MLC, a TLC, or an SLC. And for you that aren't familiar with those terms, that's a single-layer NAND, that's a, a multi-layer or a triple-layer, which is what the uh, Samsung drives use. Uh, those voltage error correction algorithms have to run through, and a lot of times it can drop your drive speed down to like 60 meg reads until they're done kind of going through and refreshing all the voltage levels for all those. So uh, that's another like caveat rat hole. Um, as far as like actually dying though, you know, I have not run into it, and I have laptops and hard drives that sit sometimes unused for a month at a time, and so it's not usually an issue. Okay, good. So this is what I have to say about this whole discussion. You have failed me for the last time. <laughs> I hate hard drives, and they're not going to fail me anymore. I'm going to have everything backed up, and everything's going to be coordinated, and I'm going to know where the hell everything is. Um, one last thing, and if anybody out there can find this, uh, and this kind of addresses one of the things that you were talking about, about uh, possibly grabbing all of the information and file uh, structure information off of all your drives. There's a program out there, and I cannot remember it for the life of me what it's called, but if you uh, swing over to PC Per, I believe they had an article on it. It scans every single drive, and it uses the master boot uh, record table in order to do so. So it can gather every single piece of information off the drive in you know a few minutes as opposed to an hour of scanning a huge drive, and it just stores it in a text format, and you can punch a bunch of drives in, uh, have it scan them, and then you get an entire list of all the files. It doesn't give you anything other than the list and the information about each of the files that's stored in the master boot record, but it's enough to go through and do at least a uh, preliminary compare and contrast and label the drives with what you think is on them and stuff like that. So uh, go to PCPer.com, look for that article. I don't remember what it is, and I don't have time to look for it, but it's out there. It's really cool. And it's the super fastest way to scan all of the information off of your drives as far as uh, file names, uh, dates they were created, and so on. Perfect. <laughs> on that note, Mitch, <laughs> we're going to close up the show. <laughs> Where can people find you? I'm at a place called... And thank you for having me on. This has been an awesome show. I really appreciate all of the information that you've shared with us today. It's going to help me get all of my data organized it's been an awesome show. Thanks. <laughs> on that note, enough nerding out for me. Mitch, thanks for coming on today. And guys, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on YouTube. And you can swing over to planet5d.com or dslrfilmnoob.com to check out anything and everything that Mitch and I do. On that note, guys, I appreciate you hanging out. And be sure to hit the like button whenever you see my name next to it. On that note, we will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob podcast. <laughs>